task unfinished, an ongoing task. We are continuing our study in Acts chapter 1, and so I would encourage you to take your Bible out and turn it to the first chapter of Acts, where we have the setting for the biggest transition, or one of the significant transitions in history, recorded in Scripture We began with Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 last week in this section of what it means to be prepared for the journey that God has set before us individually and as a people. And we're going to pick up there because there are some foundational truths that we need to grasp and that we need to understand to prepare us for whatever is going to take place in our life this year. However the Lord leads, however the Lord moves, and however the Lord works, there are some things that do not change. There are some things that are eternal, but there are some things that do change. Circumstances change. Epochs and eras change. And there are some things that we need to grasp and understand about where we are in the time and in the place that God has placed us. As you recall, when we begin, I'm going to read our text today, by the way, is verses 4 through 8 of Acts chapter 1. You will be familiar at least with verse 8. It's going to, if you've been in church for any length of time or certainly were raised in Sunday school, it's one of those commission verses that we're all familiar with. But just to set the context, I'm going to read verses 1 through 3 and then we'll pick up with our text in verse 4. Dr. Luke is writing this and this is a continuation of the gospel of Luke, part 2 if you will. And he says, in the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all the things that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Important phrase for the context of where we're going this morning. And now our text that we'll be focusing on today. And while staying with them, this is during that 40 days and right before his ascension. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you've heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked them, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, I want to thank you for this historical account, these events that happened, and how that they were recorded, empowered by the Holy Spirit of God through the pen of Luke, how they have been preserved for us, and how that there are great truths here that you give us to, to grasp and to embrace and to get serious about as we live our life as your children. So I pray that you'll speak to us with clarity today. I pray that you will convict us that you will show us areas of our life where we are thinking wrong, believing wrong, or we are behaving wrongly, either by not doing things that we should or by doing things that we should not. 
But specifically as it relates to this context, I pray that you'll open our eyes to the condition of our own heart, the things that we truly believe displayed by how we behave. And I pray that you'll shape us and that you'll change us, that you will take away, cut away, if you will, the things that need to be removed from our minds and our lives, that you will restore, that you will place into us the things that we need to believe and understand and know and trust and obey, that you will empower us as you have given us your life to live in us, to accomplish your will and your purpose for your glory. I pray, Father, that you'll just continue your work of preparing us. We're in the between. We're, we're between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ. Prepare us for eternity with you. Prepare us for your second coming. Prepare us for the journey that we travel on, knowing that the end destination won't be culminated until you come again. And in the meantime, there is a task unfinished, a task that we are to be engaged in. So you speak to our hearts this morning. Our covenant is that we will listen. In your name I pray. Amen. The book of Acts is a transitional time. It's a time when things change significantly. Now I want you to know they changed not because they were wrong before, not because they had failed before, not to correct some sort of mistake, but because in the fullness of time, and to move forward in the plan of God, who never changes, and who knows the end from the beginning, He was putting into place things that had long been prophesied. This passage, these verses are very important for us to grasp and understand, because not only because they're God's Word, but it is specifically helpful for us to know where we are in God's timeline. Like a kiosk at the mall that says, you are here. This tells us where we are in the era, in the age, and in the salvation history, if you will, of God working through His people. And we need to, as much as possible, put ourselves in the place of the disciples. I will tell you that there's some things that happen in Acts chapter 1 that make you scratch your head. And, and, and so I want us to, as far as the way that the disciples responded and some of the decisions that the disciples made, so I want us to make sure that we can, as much as possible, relate to them. Remembering that they left their homes to follow Christ. They left their jobs to follow Christ. Some of them were ostracized by their family. The whole direction of their lives radically changed. And for about three years, they followed with Christ and they ministered to Him and they ministered with Him and they sat at His feet. And this was the promised Messiah. And then that fateful day in Jerusalem when, when in the Garden of Gethsemane, the soldiers came and they took Christ and He went from the house of Annas to Caiaphas, a high priest, and to Pilate, and then he was interviewed by Herod, and back to Pilate, and then before the crowd, and then ultimately to Golgotha. And there was their hope, there was their Messiah. And though Jesus had taught them, and though there were Old Testament prophecies, they were somewhat obscured in their hearts, and they couldn't get it, and they saw their Messiah, the one they'd given their life to, die, put to death. They knew he was dead, they took his body off the cross. They knew he was dead. They put him in a borrowed tomb. They knew he was dead. They were at wit's end, not knowing what to do, concealing themselves from others in the area, lest they too suffer the same fate. Until early in the morning on the third day, when they went to prepare his body, when they went to put spices on him, and they found the empty tomb, and Jesus showed up to them on that day. And what we have here is a very clear explanation that 
for the next 40 days, for the next 40 days, Jesus would appear sometimes to one, sometimes to two, the road to Emmaus, the room where they were meeting and in hiding, when he would eat a meal with them, when he would spend extended periods of time. One time, at least, he showed up before a group of over 500 people for 40 days, this resurrected Christ, the promised Messiah, the one in whom they had placed their hope, the one in whom their hopes had seemingly been dashed, was now resurrected. And the Old Testament prophecies of Daniel chapter 7, of Jeremiah chapter 31, of Isaiah chapter 53, again and again, are coming true right before their very eyes. This is the Messiah, indisputably, not simply because He said so. Not simply attested to by His facts and miracles, but He lives and we talked to Him. And we walked with Him. And we listened to Him. And we placed our hands in the scars on His wrist. And in the scar on His side. What God has said. What God has said for thousands of years. We see it happening now. And oh yeah, there was a lot of teaching that went on. As the disciples, they were in the upper room. And they had the upper room discourses where Jesus was preparing them. And it's almost like cramming for a test. I'm telling you, I'm going away. And if I go, I'll prepare a place for you. And if I prepare a place, I'll come again and receive you unto myself. And we don't know where you're going. Have you been, I've been, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. He even says to Nathaniel, have you been so long with me and not seen the Father? You know, and so they're still struggling with this. And so there's this continual illumination that takes place. Well, now here Jesus is with the disciples and he's in Jerusalem and he tells them to wait. And in this last interchange, there are some things that are changing. I'm talking about massive changes right before their eyes. And there are some changes that we need to grasp as we go through this, because there are some changes that need to take place in in our understanding to make sure we understood what they understood. And the first change that I want us to get is that he is talking to them about the new covenant. Do you remember the account recorded in John where Jesus is sitting at the table with the disciples? He's in the upper room. It's the feast day. It's the time of Pentecost, and he breaks bread with them, and he He says, this bread is my body which is broken for you. And he drinks the cup and says, this cup is the new covenant, the New Testament in my blood. Well, the culmination of that New Testament, that new covenant is about to take place. Recorded in Acts chapter 2, just a few days hence, just a few days from now, Jesus tells his disciples. And the first change that I want us to get that they experienced was that the new covenant was unveiled and that's point one on your outline it should be written in there for you but the new covenant was unveiled and we need to grasp that because we need to understand that there are some people churches religions denominations groups that don't grasp the new covenant now to understand the new testament we have to have at least a a nodding acquaintance with the old covenant how many of you are doing our daily bible reading raise your hand I praise the Lord for that. What a tremendous response. For the rest of you, I pray God keeps you awake tonight till you catch up. No kidding. But I would certainly encourage you to to attend. Do you remember what we read Friday? If you're following along on on the schedule. And by the way, Saturday and Sunday are catch-up days, so it's a good day to be reminded of this. But what we read is Exodus chapter 24. And over this week, we've read the giving of the Ten Commandments. We've read the instructions that God gave to them. And we see Moses before the people. 
And before the people, he says, these are the things that God says to do, and he will be our God. And their response is, we will do all that the Lord has said. And it's repeated. We will do all that the Lord has said. How'd that work out? And not real well. The Old Testament, by the way, the Old Covenant, by the way, I will use the words covenant and testament interchangeably because they mean the same thing. Covenant, testament, agreement, uh, promise, uh, arrangement. Uh, the Old Covenant was that God had given was one that God had given with Israel. He chose them for a special relationship that He didn't have with any other group of people on earth. He took the founding fathers, the patriarchs, if you will, and He grew their descendants into a great nation. He gave them a land, the promised land, Canaan. And He gave them His law to live by, which we have just read in our daily Bible reading. And the command was that they be loyal to God and to uh, obey Him and worship Him alone. And if they did, His promise was blessing upon them. And if they did not, He promised that they would be chastened. Again, you can read this in not only Exodus that we just read, but in the second telling of the law, Deuteronomy chapter 27 and 28. As part of the Old Covenant, God even established a sacrificial system. You remember the stories of the Old Testament and the instructions, how specifically they were given the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the sacrificial lamb. You remember the scapegoat and how that was dealt with. You remember the multiple offerings where they would come and they would do a wave offering and they would do a, a wheat offering and, and, and there would be the, the shedding of the blood of the lambs. And, and the goats, and even the doves. And it was a whole system that was set up. These sacrifices were set up to be repeated over and over. He even ordained a group of people that were specifically priests of the tribe of Levi, who were to conduct these ceremonies and represent the people before God and represent God to the people, as the people themselves could never come directly into the presence of God. And even with all of these accommodations, we know by reading the Old Testament, by history, we know that the people were unfaithful and eventually fell under the judgment of God. And by the way, Jeremiah was written before the fall and during the fall and after the fall of Jerusalem. He was a prophet when the punishment of Jerusalem in the 70 years of captivity began. And he prophesied that judgment was coming upon the nation of Israel. But he also told them that something better was coming don't go to sleep yet. This is good. You understand what was taking place, right? The children of Israel, disobedient to God, rebellious. According to the covenant they had entered into with God, God is exercising judgment. The days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31. When I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. You will know that Israel, often we think of Israel as all of the Jews. But the kingdom was divided, David and then Solomon, and then of course Rehoboam and Jeroboam, and under Rehoboam and Jeroboam, the ten tribes went north, two tribes stayed south, and Israel was the northern tribes, Judah were the southern tribes. And so he's talking about with, with all of the, the, his people. And he says, it will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them declares the Lord there was a problem with the old covenant 
If you're looking at the Old Covenant as a means of eternal salvation, it cannot satisfy that. Not that there's anything wrong with the covenant. What is wrong is that people can't keep the righteous requirements of the law, which we see when the mystery is unveiled. That's the whole point of the covenant, to make us aware of our need for a Savior. This covenant I will make, he continues, with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they'll all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness. I will remember their sins no more. The old covenant, he's pointing forward to the new covenant. The covenant made in the body and blood of Christ. In this new covenant, God said Israel will be restored. And that sins will finally and completely be forgiven. People will know God directly. And they will have His law written on their hearts. So that they will want to obey Him. The law under the Old Covenant was never a means to salvation. Rather, it led to condemnation. And the realization of condemnation is people repeatedly violated the covenant. You understand that it was not the success of the Jews in accomplishing the covenant that ushered in the kingdom. It was the recognition that they could not be successful. And it was their opposition to the Messiah that carried Christ to the cross that that ushered in the new covenant. So they had those sacrifices, and I won't take any more time with this, but this is fascinating things to me. Yeah, you should read Hebrews chapter 7, particularly chapter 8 and 9 and 10, where it says all of the old covenant, all of these old things were put into place to point us to the culmination of God's saving work in the person of Christ. And so the Jews who had for centuries worshipped in the temple, the Jews who had for centuries brought their sacrifices to the temple every year. The Jews who had for centuries could not go into the Holy of Holies, only the high priest and only on the day of Yom Kippur. All of these things that have been put into place as part of the old agreement, the old covenant, were now supplanted by the coming of Christ. When Christ came, the writer of Hebrews says, As a high priest, the good things that are now already here, he went through the greater and more perfect tabernacle that is not made with human hands. That is to say, not part of this creation. He did not enter by means of the blood of goats and cows, but he entered the most holy place once and for all by his own blood, thus obtaining eternal redemption. Remember the system of the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkled on those who are ceremoniously unclean, sanctify them so that they were outwardly clean. That was an external clean, temporary, maintaining the, the requirements of the covenant. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from the acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? Hebrews chapter 9. So here's what I want you to get from this. The disciples were first-hand witnesses at the closing of the Old Testament and its culmination in the establishment, the inauguration, the kicking off of the New Testament. Why does that matter to me? Here's why it matters to me, to you and me. It matters because at one time we were outside and now we're included. We are Gentiles. It matters because the Old Covenant demonstrates our sinfulness. The New Covenant makes provision for our sin through the perfect Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. The new covenant is grace. The new covenant is being forgiven. 
The new covenant is saying, I can't. I am desperately in need of a Savior. And here is Christ. And so when He comes, and He comes with the, through the Holy Spirit, giving us conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment and drawing to Himself, we come to Him in surrender and repentance and faith. And He makes us new. And so you need to realize, you need to be able to say with absolute clarity, conviction, and confidence, I am in a covenant relationship with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Under every one of these points, there's going to be something that we need to take home and get clear. And that is that if you're here as a believer, if you're in the sound of my voice, or if you're a sound of my voice or not, if you have come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are His. You are, as Peter described, a chosen race. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now there's a lot of places I could go from here. A lot of places I wanted to go from here. You guys have no idea how hard it is sometimes (laughs) to take all of these pages and bring them down to a key point. But let me just focus on this really quick. Number one. If you're a Christian and you live in this country or other countries and you get the mindset that Christians are persecuted and we're having a hard time and we no longer win the culture wars and it's as though we're some sort of victims of what's taking place, you are not a victim. You are a conqueror, more than conquerors in Christ Jesus. You are a chosen people. You are a holy nation. You're a royal priesthood. You are the people of God who have been delivered from darkness to light. And that should excite you. You are a covenant people with God of the new covenant. So here are the disciples, and all of a sudden this new covenant has come into place. That is still true for us. And they're waiting for the promise of the Father, specifically in context. They're waiting, context, they're waiting for the coming of the Holy Spirit. John chapter 14, verse 15, Jesus had already promised them. Remember, he said, wait for the promise that I already told you about in John 14. When he's preparing his disciples, those upper room discourses, he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. Now, I'm going to ask the Father, and he will give to you another helper, paraclete, parakletos. He will give you another of the same kind, but he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, with whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you And, get this, He dwells with you and will be in you. Radical change. He dwells with you and will be, in John 14, will be in you. Again, He tells them again in 15, just a little later in the same conversation. When the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, who is the Spirit of truth, He comes from the Father, He will bear witness about me and you will bear witness because you've been with me from the beginning. And again, in 16, he tells them, I know you don't want me to leave you. I know it's going to be hard for you when I go away, but I'm going to tell you the truth. It's better for you that I go away. For if I don't go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And you may say, wait, we're talking about changes. The Holy Spirit is not a new thing. We see him throughout the Old Testament, and we do. The Holy Spirit was upon the face of the deep. We see Him from creation to the prophets. The Spirit came upon Isaiah. The Spirit came upon Jeremiah. The Spirit came upon Amos. We see Him coming on David. And we see David saying to the Lord, Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. 
And yet we have to recognize that when John tells us that the Spirit had not yet been poured out, which is John chapter 7, verse 39, even then, this was pre-Acts chapter 2, this was pre-the pouring out of the Spirit, and John says the Holy Spirit has not been poured out yet. Even when you get to John 20, and this is confused to a lot of people, in John 20, it says the Spirit filled the disciples. Well, even that, it's clear that that's not the change, the big change that happened in Acts chapter 2. That's why they're to go and wait. I say go. They're to stay. How about that? They're to stay and wait on the promise to be fulfilled. And what was the promise? That the Holy Spirit would come out. So the issue is not that the Holy Spirit is a new thing. Here's the issue. We have a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. We have a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. In the, in the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit would come and go. And the Holy Spirit would come and there would be dispensations. And I do, you, we need to study the presence and the work of the Holy Spirit in the, in the Old Testament. Some of us and some people teach that the Holy Spirit did not become significant to the New Testament. That's just flat not true. But what is true is that when Jesus went, God sent, He sent the Holy Spirit to come and our relationship with Him changes. It's not so much now that He's with us, the radical change is that he is in us. What is the statement that he makes? Verse 5, For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. What does it mean to be baptized? Isn't that what you do in the pool at the front of the church in a Baptist church? Is that what it means? The word baptized, again, is a Hebrew word, bautizo, and they didn't translate it. They just transliterated it. They just took the letters and anglicized them for English. And so we need to understand what it means. And it means to immerse. It means to be placed into, to submerged. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost was a decisive event in the history of redemption that had never happened before. Ever since we've been living in a completely different era, things changed at that point. And yet it is one in which we share with our Old Testament brothers and sisters in faith, repentance, and renewal. It was told that this was going to happen. You remember our study in Luke when John the Baptist was questioned and John answered them all saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So this means we become placed in the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit becomes placed in us. In Acts chapter 2. And it occurs, by the way, at conversion. If you're confused about this baptism of the Holy Spirit, it's not something that happens later and then again, and there's some sort of deeper level. When you are saved, you are placed into Him. He is placed into you. Acts chapter 2, verse 38. Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. When you repent, you receive the gift. Of the Holy Spirit. We see evidence of this relationship throughout the book of Acts and Pentecost when the Spirit was poured out, and progressively throughout the book of Acts. And 1 John 4.15 gives us clarity when he says, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they in God. And even Romans chapter 8 says, If you don't have the Spirit of God in you, you're not saved. You remember that? And so, 
Again and again, we see that we are the temple. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, as a church, we're the temple of the Spirit of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, individually, our bodies are a temple of the Spirit of God. And that speaks to sufficiency. And so here's the second statement that goes with that. The first is that I am in a covenant relationship with Christ. The second that goes with a new relationship with the Holy Spirit is that the Holy Spirit lives in me. Now, can you affirm that? I know that to some extent this sounds like a classroom, but the truths that we're dealing with will rock your world. When you stop and consider that God himself takes up residence within you. He indwells you. And you are to be filled with all the fullness of God. And what that speaks to is all this stuff that we can't do in our own flesh. We can do in the Spirit of God. All these areas in which we feel incompetent to accomplish the task He's got before us, He's competent to accomplish it. All the questions that we have about what's wise to do and what's not wise to do and what steps should we take about the future, He is the Spirit who gives us wisdom and knowledge and guides us. So many people that I talk to are struggling as Christians because they don't simply realize and claim the truth that the Spirit of God indwells them already. And it's like they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting and they're waiting when all they need to do is step out in faith and believe what they already know to be true in their minds and believe it with their lives, believe it with their actions, believe it with their behaviors. So many people struggle with, I want to experience the power of God. Do you? Can you? Absolutely. How do you know that? Because the person of God, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Godhead, indwells you already if you're one of His. It speaks to so much truth. The Holy Spirit lives within me. That is so good. So good. When, the, when studying the disciples' response to Jesus' command to wait for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the disciples are often criticized and thrown under the bus. Do you remember what comes next? Lord, are you coming now to establish your kingdom? And we say, those disciples, duh. How can they be so stupid? Didn't, didn't, they, didn't Jesus already tell them? And didn't Jesus already tell them? I've got to tell you. I cut the disciples a lot of slack because I am far more dense than any of them as attested in Scripture. And I believe that their response was beyond reasonable. I believe it was the right response. Do you know how many times in the Old Testament the prophecy of the Messiah coming in the kingdom, the government shall be upon his shoulders and his kingdom shall be without end? Without end. Do you guys remember that? Uh, Isaiah chapter 9. And again and again, you, see, you have the prophecy of the Messiah is going to come. He'll even be in Bethlehem and he'll be born of a virgin. How many times are those prophecies linked to the establishment of the kingdom of God? Almost every time. 
Again and again, when we have the promised Messiah, we have the promise of the establishment of the kingdom of God on this earth. Again and again. Here's one from the book that we've been looking at mostly in the Old Testament, Jeremiah. He says, Jeremiah 23, Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I've driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply, and I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing from the Lord. This is Daniel. Daniel 7 is a tremendous prophecy, one that they knew well. And in that day, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. It shall stand forever. Again and again, the promise of Messiah is coupled with the promise of the coming kingdom. So what do they get? They ask the question, here you are. Here you are resurrected. Here you are teaching us for 40 days about the kingdom of God. Is it now? And Jesus changes their perspective. He sets them in their place, not in the way that you might be thinking. He sets them in their place in time and in responsibility. He sets them in their place when he says to them, It is not for you to know the times or the season that the Father has fixed in his, in his own authority. And so what he has given them, what's new here is a new understanding about the coming kingdom. A new understanding about the coming kingdom. Which is, all of God's promises are true. When the prophets spoke, they spoke about these events and about those events, the events that were yet to come. Yes, Jesus tells them, I came in fulfillment of prophecy. And yes, I will come again in fulfillment of those prophecies when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God. But not today. I don't know when it is. You don't know when it is. The Father knows when it is. And that's His authority. He has already taught this in Matthew 24 when it says, Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, nor the Son, but the Father only. And so here's the statement that goes with this change in our understanding. Jesus is coming again. And you might want to put... At any time. Jesus is coming again. At any time. And so we come to verse 8. You guys remember where we are, right? Forty days Jesus has been teaching them about the kingdom. Their world has been shaken up. And here's the, the living embodiment of centuries of prophecy standing before them. And he tells him all the promises are true. Some are fulfilled now and some are going to be fulfilled. You don't know when. It's okay. You're in this period between, between the first coming and the second coming. What Paul calls in Romans chapter 11, the time of the Gentiles. The time for the kingdom of God to be spread, not only to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And he gives them a new mission. And you may think, wait a minute, didn't the Jews have a mission? Well, sure. The Jews had a mission to be a, a city on a hill. A light, a beacon. And there were non-national Jews who began to follow the God of Israel. You remember Ruth, Naomi's daughter-in-law? She was a Moabite. Yeah, you remember Rahab? She was a Canaanite from Jericho. And yet she's in the lineage of our Savior. When, when God delivered the Israelites from Egypt, a lot of the Egyptians, convinced by the plagues and by the power of God on display went with them. 
Uh, God even sent Jonah to Nineveh, those Assyrians who were pagans, and preached the gospel to them. And so there has always been this mission of be a light. Allow people to come and even invite people to come, but things change here. Things change when he says, after the Holy Spirit comes upon you, you shall be witnesses to me. And by the way, that is not imperative. That is indicative. He's not saying, I need you to go and be my witnesses. He's saying, this is what's going to happen. (laughs) Here's what's going to happen. When you are filled with the Spirit of God, when you are made new, when this pouring comes out, you are going to be witnesses unto me. In Jerusalem, right here where you live with people that you know and you see every day. And in Judea, familial relationships, close geographies. Samaria, people you don't like and people who don't like you. And to the ends of the earth, nobody is outside of the purview of your mission. And so we see that we have a new covenant. We see that we have a new relationship with the Holy Spirit. We see we have a new understanding about the coming kingdom. The Lord is coming, and it could be any time. We know not today. We also have a new mission, and that is not to be a light and hope people come. That is to go. Go to them. With the God. It's what Acts is about. It's what the Holy Spirit did in the lives of the apostles. They preached, and they shared, and they went, and they were aggressively and intentionally on mission. That's a really long introduction for the sermon, isn't it? Because let me tell you what the heart of this message is. We need to take our mission seriously. We need to stop playing around with this. We need to stop twiddling our thumbs. We need to stop making excuses. Every time I preach on evangelism, somebody says, that's not my calling. And my response to that is, if you're a Christian, yes, it is. After the Holy Spirit comes to indwell you, you will be witnesses. Witnesses of Christ. And we need to be actively engaged. Now, we talk about Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the most parts of the earth. We could do a whole series on just those phrases. But let me just kind of bring this down really, really simple and, and as clear as I can make it. You ought to be witnesses to the people you see every day. It may be somebody living in your house, a family member, friend. It may be, I don't know, do y'all go to the grocery store every day? You go every week, right? It may be the same faces that you see, that you have familiar. Are, are your kids involved in activities? It may be the same parents of the kids, whose kids are involved in the same activities. You've got this regular contact. And you need to be a witness to them. And by the way, Kind of the lowest bar here is to say, I go to a church that loves God, and I would like to invite you to come with me. That's about as simple as it gets, isn't it? But wait, we meet at the Hilton. It's uncomfortable for people to come to the Hilton. Thousands of people come to the Hilton every month. And there's nothing wrong with inviting people to come sit in a chair with you here beside you. Matter of fact, you ought to be doing that. Here's my concern. When we talk about preparing for the journey going back to the West End, some of us are going to think, I'm not going to do anything until we get back to the West End. Whoa! To the extent that I have conveyed that, I apologize. We are on mission today. 
And so it may be time for a change. It may be time for you to say, Lord, up until now, I have not talked to the people I see regularly. I haven't, I haven't prayed for them to be saved. I haven't invited them to church. I haven't introduced them to Christian friends. I haven't given them a tract. I haven't read a verse of scripture with them. I haven't intercessorily prayed for them intentionally with this in mind. And today, you say, my Jerusalem, my Jerusalem. I'm going to be a witness in my Jerusalem. And if we just go to Judea, Judea was where the Jews lived. It was the southern kingdom. It was around where they were. It was familial. It was people that they had affinities with. And in my mind, frankly, my Judea is is the West End. I'm there every day. My office is there. I see people walking up and down the streets. I go to the convenience stores over there. I know every coffee shop on the West End. I know the first names of half of the people that serve me coffee in those coffee shops on the West End. I can tell you the names of people who serve me food in their restaurants on the West End. And I like to eat, okay? But I like to go back to the same places so I can get to know business owners and people who work in their businesses in different places. And I feel that in a lot of ways the West End is my home. My house is not there, but I'm there every day. I feel like it's my community. I walk up and down those streets and drive up and down those streets. Pray for the people who live in those houses. And I need to be a witness to those. Not just when we get there, Lord willing. We've got a lot of steps to go before then. Why wait? Why wait? And so... Let's just go Jerusalem and Judea right now. We'll pick up uh, Samaria and the ends of the earth. And we are engaged. You need to know, as a church, we are engaged in enabling and partnering with others for the gospel. But the light that shines the farthest shines the brightest close to home. And so here's the call. Are you taking this mission seriously? Now, I got this whole section prepared on I'm afraid, I can't do it, my mouth doesn't work, I get scared. What happens if, what happens if? We're not even going to get to that. Let's just acknowledge the fact that we're in a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? I am in a covenant relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And number two, I am indwelled by the Spirit of God, which means I know all I need to know and I have all the power of God at my disposal. And number three, the Lord is coming back and could come back at any time. And the Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, concerning His promise to come and exercise judgment upon the world. But He is delaying because He doesn't want anyone to perish. This is grace that we live in, in this church age. And number four, I need to be engaged and take seriously the mission that God has given to me. Can we do that? Let me tell you, last, I'll close with this, I promise. You want to know joy unspeakable, full of glory? Confess sin, be cleansed, and take a step of obedience. You want to know joy unspeakable, full of glory? You want to know an experience of rapture on this earth, if you will? Confess sin, no excuses on it. Repent of it and be obedient 
to what God's called you to do. And you experience his power working. He'll give you words to say. He will bring people to you that will be open. And you will experience the power of God. You already have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. What is requisite is obedience and surrender. Isn't God good? We get to be a part of his kingdom. We get to be a part of his work. And we ask that he come, that he come soon, but not before we're done with the task that he's given to us. And so let's stand together. And I would invite you to simply pray with me and acknowledge the truths that Jesus reminded the disciples of in Acts chapter 1. Let's stand. Father, we thank you for the new covenant sealed in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for the forgiveness of sin and the fact that you have saved us and you've claimed us and you've made us your own. Father, I want to thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit, that you asked the Father and he responded. And he sent the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the, the person, third person of the Godhead, God himself to indwell us, who gives us illumination and understanding of your eternal word, who gives us power and strength, sufficiency, so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, I want to thank you that you are coming again. And Lord, it can't be soon enough. Even so, Lord Jesus, come. But in the meantime, Father, help me to take your mission to me seriously. To be witnesses. To tell of you. To tell of your truth. To tell the good news of salvation. To those who I see every day. And to those who... We have a relationship with those in our community and in our city. We love you. We trust you. Use us for your glory. In your name I pray. Amen.